trapped and alone. I think the whole world pretty much has taken notice of the Thailand boys soccer team. Uh, 12, 12 boys between the ages of 11 and 16 and their 25-year-old coach. In case you haven't heard, they're, they're trapped in a cave in Thailand. They were exploring just the area. It was one of the boys' birthdays. So they, were, they were just kind of checking things out, found a cave. They thought they'd go in there and carve their initials in the cave. So they leave their shoes. They leave their backpacks. They bring no food, no water with them. They go into the cave, and shortly after entering the cave, their batteries give out, and it's just completely dark, pitch black. They could put their hands in front of their face and they couldn't see anything. They couldn't see the hand right in front of their face. It's pitch black. And then a flash flood comes and swept them deeper into the cave. Now, they're, they're so deep in the cave that it takes Navy SEALs, the Thai Navy SEALs, six hours to get to where they are. Two British uh, divers and six Thai Navy SEALs discovered them nine days later. One of their first questions was, how long have we been in here? Because you lose all sense of time. It's just pitch black for nine days. No food, no, no water, just stuck alone, trapped in that cave. And so there, there they are, and now um, efforts are being made to get them out. And I just read this morning that six of them, the, 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 ref, the uh, efforts are underway right now, and six of them have now made it safely out, out of the cave. And yeah, we need to keep praying for them that they can get them all out. Yeah. But, but you look at it and you think, if, if you were to ask those rescuers or those, those boys trapped in the cave um, or, or their parents or anybody, uh, I think they'd all tell you they just want to get out of the cave. It, it doesn't matter how. you know, It doesn't matter what way of escape they find. They, they went through all these different scenarios of how to get these boys out. I don't think they really care how. They just want to get out, right? That's kind of how it is when you're trapped. If you've ever been trapped, if you've ever been lost, you, you just want to get to safety. You just want to get to familiar territory again. You, you just want to get to a place where you know and you feel safe and you feel secure and you feel good again. I mean, this is all you want. You don't really care how. You just want to get there. And so during this Beatitude series that we've been looking at, Jesus is focusing on this, this pursuit that all of humanity has is this pursuit of satisfaction, of, of happiness. We, we all want to live satisfied, happy, fulfilled lives. And this is what humanity is after. And so Jesus, he, he's pressing in on these needs, the, this, this desire of all humanity of where happiness can be found, where fulfillment can be found, and, and he looks, and, and, and you, you see it's clear that the world comes along with all of her theories about where to be happy, about where to find fulfillment, about how to be satisfied. And in this, season, and in this series, according to Jesus' own words, I mean, it's clear that the world is clamoring around in the dark, that, that her theories for happiness and for fulfillment and for satisfaction, they're all temporary at best. See, the truth is we're living in an upside-down world. And Jesus, he's explaining how, how to live right-side up in that upside-down world. And he's imparting wisdom that the world never will. 
And so as we continue our series this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. And just, uh, just to kind of help you remember, up to this point, Jesus has said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In each statement, he uses this word blessed. The the Greek term is makarios. It means truly happy, fortunate, blessed. And and he's going through and he's saying this is where blessing is. This is where satisfaction can be found. This is where true happiness, true fulfillment comes from. And in, in each and every time, he's just blowing every circuit in the audience's head because they think, no, no, no. This is totally antithetical to anything we've ever heard. We would never think of looking there. Let me tell you, we finish up the series next week, and you don't want to miss where Jesus ultimately leads to in in this whole series on where blessing, where fulfillment, where true happiness can be found. And, and, And it's a place that the world would never look like with all of these others. And Jesus says, if you if you want any type of satisfaction at all in life, this is where it's found. And you won't find it any other place. Let's go ahead and look at these two verses this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, this advice here, it goes against every grain of worldly thinking. The, the, The world will tell you that if you want to be happy, then you will have people at your mercy. If you want to be happy, you know, sometimes you just got to go ahead and finish them off when they're down. You know, don't let anybody take advantage of you. Give them what they earn. Let them know who's boss. Don't let them off easy. See, Jesus, he comes along. He says something radically different. He says, blessed are the merciful. But blessed who don't treat people the way they deserve to be treated, the way they earn uh, our treatment. But blessed are those who will treat people according to what they need rather than what they've earned. John, in 1 John, he would, he would write that this is an evidence of our salvation. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, John wrote, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we had to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love the world, let, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. See, see this mercy, it's already often given to us. We, we didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, but we've been given this incredible gift of, of Christ's sacrifice on the cross in our place. We didn't do anything to merit that. And this image of laying down our lives for the, for the life of someone else this is what the Christian life is all about. And the only way to do that is to see people the way Jesus sees them. See people the way Jesus sees people. And we can't do that in and of ourselves. Our default is to see people the way we want to see them and how they relate to us. And, okay, based on how they treat us, that's how we treat them. Jesus, he says something radically different. He says, see them as he sees them. Give them what they need, not what they deserve. And and see, we're we're making our way through these beatitudes, and there's this progression that's taking place. And as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, we begin to live a life centered on Jesus' life. And so it affects our perspective of the way we see others. We see them as Jesus saw them. 
And so we come alongside of people. Maybe they're standoffish a little bit. Maybe they're rude and maybe they're unkind and maybe they don't treat us well. But instead of having nothing to do with them, instead of turning our back, instead of being rude and kind, we do something altogether different. We greet them again. We come up to them again. We continue to smile. We continue to extend our greeting. We show them grace. And they may say, why are you doing this? You don't even know me. Why are you treating me this way? And we say something like, you're right. You know, I don't really know much about you. But I think I know something about you that you may not even know about yourself. And that is, I've been told that you are an image bearer of God. That beneath all this on the outside, this facade, this mess, there's something in there. That God has created you in his image. And, and, And he so much wants for that image to be displayed for humanity that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for you so that this image may be recreated, that you could be a new creation in Christ. See, this is the special thing about being involved in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. Is that after layer after layer after layer of our old self is chipped away and this new image begins to take form that the world would never ever see. But you see it in a church. You see people who at one point were always critical. They could always find the negative in anything. And now all of a sudden, as the, as the layers just kind of chip away, now they have encouraging words to say. You, you see people who, who at one point looked like they had just sucked on a bunch of lemons, and now all of a sudden they got, they're wearing smiles. You, you see people who, who at one point were always unkind and always kind of standoffish, and all of a sudden they start coming out of their shell and they start greeting you. See, this is what happens in a church because after layer after layer after layer of our old self is chipped away and God is working on us to conform us into his image, all of a sudden as we are image bearers of Christ, his image begins to take form in our life and we see something altogether different. See, there's, there's joy when there used to be worry. Because the faithful hand of God is at work, and we have confidence in that. This happens in the church when we demonstrate mercy to one another. Mercy upon mercy. We don't treat one another as they deserve to be treated, but we treat one another based on what they need. We recognize that none of us have arrived. None of us are perfect. None of us are now in that glorified state that we're all in process. We're all in process of continuing to look more and more like Jesus. Some of us may be further down the road than others, but we're all in process. And so we see people as Jesus sees them. We give them what they need, not what they deserve. And when we do that, something incredible happens. We're happy. We're we're, we're blessed. There's happiness, there's joy there, and it won't happen anywhere else. Let me be clear, though. Jesus, as he gives this promise that blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, Jesus is not saying that if you show mercy to others, they will in turn show mercy to you. That's not at all what he is saying. In fact, if Jesus were saying that when Jesus came, he would not have been showered with insults and a death sentence. He would have been given hugs and praises. Well, that's not what happened. You look at the life of David. 
And his, his interaction with King Saul, and twice he had the opportunity to kill King Saul. And you remember, King Saul wanted David dead. I mean, King Saul was hunting David. He was throwing spears at him. It's a good thing he wasn't a good shot. But he, he wanted David dead. I mean, one time, David, even he, he was able to slice a piece of, of Saul's cloak off and prove, hey, I could have killed you. That didn't make King Saul all of a sudden say, you know, David, you're right. Now I'm going to start being nice to you. Thanks for not taking my life when you could have. I'm going to start treating you different now. King Saul didn't do that. He still hunted him down. He still wanted David dead. It's possible, sometimes even likely, to show people mercy, but not to receive any in return. They will continue to leave you out. They will continue to mistreat you. They will continue to say nasty things about you. The promise is not that if you are merciful to others, they will be merciful to you. That's not what he's saying at all. In the same way, Jesus is not saying that if you show mercy to others, you will earn mercy from God. We don't earn mercy by extending mercy. God's gift of salvation is completely free. It is completely unmerited. It is not earned. It's simply received. God, who being rich in mercy, saved us while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, is when Christ went to the cross for us. It is impossible to be saved without the mercy of God. And that's salvation. It's still in process. It's still in the process of being worked out in our lives all the way through glorification. So so we now, as Christians, we experience the, the mercy of Christ's salvation in us right now during this state of sanctification as he's conforming us into the image of Christ. And then one day we look forward to glorification when we will be perfect, made in his image, recreated perfectly, that perfect new creation. But, but in the meantime, we are continuing to receive God's mercy here and now. And we will continue to receive his mercy even as we are glorified. See, this beatitude is perhaps best understood that as since we are people who have received and will continue to receive the mercy of God, go ahead and prove that by showing mercy to others. In fact, if you, if you were to reverse this beatitude, or any of the beatitudes for that matter, you will never find happiness. There will be no happiness there if you decide, I will not show mercy to others. That instead, I will give people what they earn. I will treat them based on the way they treat me. There will be no joy. There will be no happiness there. I mean, just, just imagine Joseph with me for a moment, and you go back and you look at him, and, and Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave to Egypt. But God raised him up, second in charge over Egypt. Years later, a famine comes. Joseph's brothers come to Joseph. I mean, Joseph had them at his mercy. He could have done anything to them. If he wanted to seek revenge, if he wanted to get even, if he wanted to hurt them, if he wanted to humiliate them, he could have done anything to them. He could have made them pay. But instead, he extends mercy to them. Now, it doesn't matter how they respond. The fact that they responded well, you know, that was great. There was restoration and everything there. But it didn't matter the response. See, see, this blessing that God gives is not dependent on circumstances. It's why you can show mercy to someone and they cannot show mercy back. They, They cannot treat you well in kind. But you're still happy. There's still blessing. There's still joy. Because this blessing, this this happiness, this fulfillment that God gives 
is not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon the way other people treat you. It's dependent upon God's faithfulness. And this works with every single beatitude. If you flip it and you do the opposite, there will be no joy. There will be no lasting happiness. It's just misery. You know, it's temporary at best that maybe for a moment it feels good and then it's just fleeting and it fades away. It's chasing the wind. Jesus, he, he moves on to the next beatitude and he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. What Jesus is talking about here is holiness. And this is just as backwards as any of the other beatitudes that he's mentioned. It's just as counter-cultural. I mean, the, the world might tell you that, hey, a little religion is okay, but don't get carried away. You know, a, a little bit's fine, but, but don't go overboard with this God stuff. That, 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 that would be a little too much. The, the world will say that if you want to be happy, that, hey, everyone's got a few skeletons in their closet. It's best if you just keep them there. Don't let them come out. It's best to keep some things secret Jesus says, no, no, those skeletons, they've already been revealed and should have been mourned over. Because now you're a new creation and you have pure-hearted devotion to God. Whereas mercy is primarily this external activity based on the way we treat others, being pure in heart, this purity is primarily an internal quality. And the heart is so important to God. I mean, you go through all of Scripture and you see the heart. It just, it's this repeated uh, idea that God continues to come back to the importance of the heart. You see it in Proverbs and Psalms all over the place. In 1 Samuel, it says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. See, the world will tell you, just clean up your behavior. And Jesus says, your behavior is driven by your heart. Jesus will continue in the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to have time to look at it, but he's going to show why the law of Christ is so much superior to the Mosaic law. And he, he will give a series of statements that you have heard what it was said, but I say to you. You remember those statements, don't you? Where Jesus comes and he, and he says, hey, you have heard what it was said. You've heard that the Mosaic law told you not to murder. But I'm telling you, don't even hate anybody. So you have heard the Mosaic law told you not to commit adultery, but I'm telling you not even to look at a woman lustfully. See, see Jesus, he cuts right to the heart. He says, the activity, the behavior, that's one thing, but the standard that I've called you to is so much higher than that. I'm after your heart. See, Jesus, one thing that Jesus detests, one thing that he hates is hypocrisy. I mean, he looks at, he says, hey, Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I mean, he gets it, that what is in will eventually come out. And if you've got this hypocrisy, if you're trying to live a two-faced life, it just doesn't work. He detests it. He hates it. You, you look at the way he addressed the scribes and the Pharisees, and he said, you, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You look so good on the outside. You're so cleaned up. Everything looks so pristine, so nice. But inside, you're carrying dead man's bones. He can't stand hypocrisy. He can't stand deceitfulness. See, the world will tell you, you just got to make people believe that you've got it all together. 
The, the world will tell you that all that matters, you know, you make that good first impression. That's what counts. Seeing is believing. Jesus says, no, 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 no. There, there, there's something beneath. You're, you're so concerned about the tip of the iceberg and what's underneath doesn't really matter. But, but Jesus says, no, 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 what's underneath? What, what people can't see. That's what I'm after. See, he recognizes that in order to change a person, in order to make a dead man alive, he's got to change the heart. Jesus isn't about just making the world have better manners. He's, he's after the heart. And the truth is, we, we all know that hypocrisy is evil. You know, we, we recognize hypocrisy is evil. We can't stand hypocrisy in the lives of others. And it's so easily and so often detected in other people's lives. But it, when it comes to ourselves, we fool ourselves. And, and we often miss it. We're often blind to it in our own lives. See, we, we want people to think better of us than we actually are. We, we sometimes modify our behavior when certain people are around so that they think more highly of us. We're, we're bothered when people don't notice our good performance. We get touchy when our faults are pointed out, but we're quick to say, yeah, 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 they need to work on that, don't they? See, sometimes we feel one emotion, but we want other people to think we're feeling something different. We can be more invested in looking spiritual than in actually our own spiritual growth. These are all habits of hypocrites. And they're habits that we often miss in our own lives. If we only hated our hypocrisy as much as Jesus does... See, James, he comes along and he writes this letter and he's pleading with the church in his letter. And he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? See, we we can sometimes often think that, hey, I'm going to pursue God, but at the same time, I'm going to pursue the world. I want to have both. And James says, no. This world is upside down. This is an upside-down world, and if you're trying to live upside-down and at the same time please a right-side-up God, it just doesn't work that way. They're opposed. He says, don't, don't you get it? That to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. That you can't have it both ways. That there ought to be this purity of heart that says, I'm simply after Jesus. If you pursue the world, you become an enemy of God. It's hypocritical living. And it does, doesn't lead to any form of lasting happiness at all. And so the question comes, well, how, how do I have this purity of heart? I mean, how do I, how do I get there? That, that's what I want. That's what I'm after. How do I get there? It comes in trusting the Lord with all your heart. Trust the Lord with all your heart for everything you do in every aspect of life because God cares about every single detail of your life. He cares about every detail of your life even more than you or I do. And so it comes, it comes, okay, I'm going to trust God in my church life and how I serve and how I fellowship and how I tithe and how I give. It comes in that. It comes in trusting God in your job and praying and saying, God, give me the wisdom and the strength to do my job well, to do it with excellence, to have a passion for it, that I would stand out amongst the other employees there because I... I'm different. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I represent you with the way I do my work. It comes with your finances that, that you just pray and say, God, I, w- I want to have a budget that would honor you. 
And so I'm, I'm seeking your word and, and give me insight into how to handle my money. You trust God with your diet and what you eat and drink. And you trust God with your marriage and how you love one another. You trust God with your parenting and how you train up your children. It extends to every single detail of your life where there's no area of your life where you just say, I've got this. <laughs> I'm okay here. I don't know if I really need God's help there. Or if you say, well, I don't know if God even really cares about that. No, he cares. He cares more than you and I ever will. He cares about every single detail. He's counted the hairs on your head. He loves you more than you will ever love yourself. He wants what's best for you. So it, 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 it matters that we trust God in everything. In fact, any of those areas that you don't trust God with, any area of your life where you think, I've got this, I don't know if God really cares about that, those are the areas that you will fall. Those are the areas where sin will creep in. Those are the areas where sin will infest in your life and the joy will fade. And the happiness will cease. And misery will reign. And worry will prevail. Because we fail. We fail. Jesus never fails. We grow tired and weary. He never does. We are inconsistent. He is perfectly consistent. He is trustworthy with every aspect of our lives. We're not trustworthy with any aspect. And so it's any area where we think we've got it, where sin will march in. And we'll lose the battle. But the promise with this beatitude is that you will see God. This is the heartbeat of the psalmist. In fact, if you go out throughout Scripture and even out throughout the human world, there's this idea, this longing to see God. This, the psalmist wrote, One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. If you read through scripture, you see this continued longing to see God, to behold his glory. There's something built into the heart of man that longs to see God, that believes that if I could just see perfection, that it would make a difference in my life, that, that it, things would somehow change. That, that there's this desire in the heart of man to see God. And so many cultures, they've carved up their own gods and they've made gods out of whatever so that they can look and they can say, okay, I can see God. But it amounts to nothing because these are all fake, false gods. See, our God, in this state, we cannot quite behold him yet. We're not ready for his glory. It, it, it would doom us. The book of Revelation paints this glorious picture of a new heaven and a new earth, and there is the, the throne of God, and proceeding from the throne is the river of life. In the river of life, it cuts through the streets made of gold. And, and there we are in this picture of Revelation that, that uh, John is writing. We're there before the throne. 
gazing upon the face of God, beholding the glory of God forever. See, right now our imperfection couldn't handle it, but there will be a day when we will see him face to face, when we will behold his beauty. So radiant, in fact, that he will provide all the light that is needed. And there will never be any more darkness. There won't be any sun. There won't be any darkness. There won't be any night. And we, the children of light, will live in his light forever. Perfect happiness, perfect joy forever. This is the promise. And the book of Revelation shows us what it's going to look like when we behold face to face the glory of God. You know, the world would never have you look there, though. The the world wants another way. It craves an easier way. It just desires a way where you can be happy in and of yourself, where you can pave your own way to happiness. The world wants a way totally dependent on yourself. But the thing is, Jesus is the only one who proceeded, who came from the Father, and he's the only one who knows the way back. He's the only one who knows the way to perfect happiness, perfect peace. The the world will say, surely there has to be another way to happiness. And Jesus says, no, 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 this is the only way to find it. Imagine for a moment that you're in your home, you're in your apartment, and a fire starts. It's, It's dark, the power goes out. You can't see anything, you're in bed, and, and, and there's a fire going on, and, and you've remembered the instruction, stop, drop, and roll, and so you just roll out of your bed, and you get on the floor, and there's about six inches of good breathing air at the bottom. Everything else is ablaze, there's toxic fumes filling your home, and you're there just, just trying to crawl around, but as, as the blazes burn and the toxic fumes are going, your eyes begin to sting, they begin to water, they're burning. You begin to gag. You get this lump in your throat. You just can't breathe very well. You're, you're scrambling around. It's dark. You're bumping into walls, hitting up against them. You can't quite find your way out. Your body's beginning to shake. You're, you're disoriented. You think, I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to make it. You're not being able to breathe well, and you think it's over. And then you hear a voice. The voice says, come this way. Come this way. You don't stand up and say, well, aren't you so arrogant to think that is the only way out of my house? I know my house. There's many doors and windows. Don't tell me that this is the only way. No, no, no. You, you stay there and you say you're, you're crawling toward the voice and you're begging the voice. Keep talking. Keep talking to me so that I can make it. You're going with every, because you know that's the only way out. It's like the boys trapped in that cave. They, they don't care about any other way, any possible way. They just want to get out. Show me the way out. That's all you care about when you're trapped. See, when, when you're trapped, when you realize there's no other way, when you come face to face with your sin and you realize you can't fix what you did, that, that you can't unhurt that person that you hurt, that, that you can't take those words back, 
That, that you can't change the heart that made that bad decision. You can't change the mind that thought that was a good idea. When, when you come face to face and you realize, I can't fix that. And you're trapped. And, and you feel like you're in that cave. But then when you come face to face with what Jesus says and the light shines through and you say, this is the only way out. You don't argue and say, but God, aren't there more ways? Can't there be a way where I can just make it out myself? No, you realize I can't do this by myself. Then in and of myself, I am trapped. I can't unhurt those people. I I can't take those words back. I can't repair this by myself. I'm stuck. See, these beatitudes, it's not a matter of willpower. If I just try harder, then maybe I can be what Jesus is asking me to be. No, this is realizing I can't do it of myself. It's completely trusting God with all your heart. The good news of the gospel is not that you can get to God. It's that God has come to you. And he's come to rescue you. He's come to rescue us, the trapped, the broken, the helpless, the hopeless, the lost. Over 2,000 years ago, God made a way through time and space, and there is no other way but through Jesus Christ. And we recognize that. We we don't look for another way. (laughs) We're thankful for the salvation that has been provided. There is no other way to happiness. And you see, the pure in heart, they recognize this, and they are the ones who will see God. In an upside-down world, this is the only way to live right side up. Heavenly Father, we thank you that while we were trapped and, and lost, and broken because of our sin. That you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die a death we deserve to die, to rescue us from our sin so that we could experience eternal life with you. So God, because of that, help us to see people the way you see them. Help us not to see people as enemies or opponents or adversaries or anything like that or annoyances, but, but God, help us to see their deepest need, their need for you. Help us to give them what they need, not what they deserve. Help us to be people who extend mercy. And God, give us a pure-hearted devotion to you. We recognize that all too often we tend to gravitate to the flesh and to what we want and to pursue things of the world. God, would you rid us of that? Would you help us to focus simply and solely on you? We recognize that we need your help to do that, so we ask these things by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.